The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. We're currently in the middle of a global pandemic. And while all of us are affected in one way or another, there's a group of people that are now and will be disproportionately affected well into the future. Of course, I'm talking about children. In a previous episode with Matt Tinkler of Save the Children Australia, we unpacked what COVID-19 means for child protection and how children are at a higher risk of abuse and violence during this time. And also how concerning this is because the traditional mechanisms we have to monitor children, such as schools, are not operational. Some of my listeners might be aware that I co-founded an advocacy group called Rethink Orphanages and have worked through this and my consulting business to end orphanage tourism and advocate for better ways of supporting vulnerable children overseas. My colleagues and I in the child protection space have been looking at COVID-19's impacts on children living in orphanages and trying to wrap our heads around what this means for those children. Tourism doesn't exist anymore, and with the lack of tourists, the funding and volunteer workforce for many orphanages has dried up. While this demonstrates the symbiotic relationship between tourism and the existence of orphanages, It, of course, raises serious concerns for the welfare of children living in those institutions where conditions are already harmful and will be significantly exacerbated by the stress of their caregivers, by the lack of funding, which will mean lack of food and medical care and other necessities, and also lack of access to education. We've also been wondering what it means for the future. Will we be seeing large numbers of children with parents who have passed away from COVID-19? Will we see an explosion of people wanting to help these children once travel resumes, resulting in an influx of volunteers to orphanages? To help unpack this, I've invited my colleague, Dr. Delia Pop, to be the guest on this episode today. At the time of recording, Delia is the Director of Programs at Hope and Homes for Children, an organisation that aims to be the catalyst for the global elimination of institutional care for children. However, Delia has just told me that this month she'll be starting a new role as Director of a new initiative called Tanya's Dream Fund, which was developed in memory of Tanya Kovacheva by the Oak Foundation and also supported by the Swiss Philanthropy Foundation. Tanya's Dream Fund supports catalytic efforts to build a Bulgarian society where children grow up with their families and where the next generation doesn't understand the meaning of the word institution. Delia is multi-skilled. She's also a medical doctor and previously worked in Romania for the Child Protection Authority, where she was the director of alternative residential services. Delia's pioneering work in Romania led to the beginning of the closure of institutions for children there, and she has developed training materials for global child protection reform and is the author of a number of papers. And she's also the president of Child Rights Connect, a global child rights network connecting the daily lives of children to the United Nations. On top of all this, Delia is a tireless advocate for children in institutions globally and one of the leading figures in alternative care for children. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Delia. First off, Delia, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Mm, It's a really, really good question. I guess for me personally, doing good means actually giving people what they feel they need most to be able to do good. Doing good means to be able to respond 
with some valuable information, for example, to supporting people who are at the grassroots level of supporting children, families, communities, to encourage them, to give them the wings that they need to be able to, to deliver their, their job. And I guess doing good also is being always aware of not doing harm, making sure that whatever I do, I really think through of the unintended consequences of doing good. Well, how do you think you express that in your daily life? Is that through your work? Do you separate it or do you think it's all mixed together? Well, I think it's, it's you know, I can't really separate work from, from my life. It's, it's very much intertwined. But, you know, I try as a person to apply the same principles, uh, no matter what, to my personal life. To, to my work life, of course. And generally, I enjoy hugely working with people and actually helping them to do good is something that really, truly really motivates me. So you work for Hope and Homes for Children. You know, it's a really difficult time during this pandemic. How is the organisation faring through this? Rightfully so. It's, uh, it's very challenging. I think Hope and Homes for Children is, is doing really well. I think like any other organization, we had a moment of surprise. We, it, no one, I believe, anticipated the, the depth, the scale, the severity of, of this crisis. And the moment all the, the severe lockdowns and the protective measures were uh, applied across the countries of our operations, the space in which those were implemented was a very short period of time. So we went from our ability to deliver the work in our typical fashion to working from home in a really short period of time. So from a programmatic point of view, it really took couple of weeks for us across all our programs to actually take that those changes in to start thinking okay how can we continue to do the work that we want to do what kind of adaptations we can put in place in order to ensure that we continue to progress the work we continue to support children and families and I think now we are in a in a better place where we have identify the key indicators that we need to monitor in order to be able to continue to remain flexible. Of course, fundraising and our ability to sustain the work that we do is also a huge preoccupation. So we have a a management group at the organization level that is really looking at the implications of not being able to organize events, not being able to deliver a number of of fundraising uh, events throughout the rest of the year, and how can we compensate or, or mitigate for that potential loss. One thing I want to say, our supporters are just extraordinary, and they've rallied up and they, you know, showed how much they appreciate the work that we do, uh, they show that they continue to be with us and they will be with us through this very challenging period of time. So fingers crossed, us and all our implementing partners will be able to to come stronger out of this crisis. I'm really happy to hear that your supporters have stepped up because that's, you know, that's something that I have been concerned about and thinking about is you know, there's a natural inclination when we are ourselves in time of crisis to kind of turn inwards and protect ourselves and our loved ones first. And sometimes, you know, the program that you're supporting in a faraway country can fall right down the list. So it's really heartening to hear that you're, you're experiencing something different. So I think all of us in the child protection space are sharing very real concerns for the welfare of children that are living in institutions through this pandemic and also concerns about what this means in terms of the number of children that might potentially be orphaned or in need of alternative care and also children that are exposed to increased violence and abuse inside their homes. What are your thoughts on this? Definitely COVID-19 elevated pretty much all the risks that children in institutions and children at risk in communities already experienced. And in addition to that, we are seeing new risks emerging. 
um, lockdown measures prevented children from going to school, receiving essential services through early childhood development programs that stopped. You know, simple basic nutrition, safe spaces in schools, safe spaces in daycare centers are not available. So we are seeing a significant increase in, in, in risks. We are seeing that the lockdown measures that were implemented across the world lacked customization. They were not really adapted to fit the needs of the communities. And again, depending on the country, I wouldn't want to name those countries, but some of these measures are implemented so firmly and they really have some serious unintended consequences. In addition, it exposed, of course, the fragility of the institutions. Um, it exposed the um, fragility of their funding streams, how important it is to have any kind of service or organizations registered in country, accountable, with proof of their services and their financial sustainability, and how important it is for governments to actually be accountable for all children who are cared for in whatever type of alternative care in their own country. This situation, you know, is, is very challenging, especially as we know of examples of children being sent home quickly, uh, children being kind of exposed to no food and no carers and, and no support because the funding streams were brought in by volunteers and so on and so forth. If people were not yet convinced that institutional care is not a solution, this particular crisis really exposed to the, to the core all the issues that are so wrong with the system. Absolutely. I want to look a little bit deeper at this. And to do that, I thought we could go on a bit of a trip around the world to understand what's happening for children that are living outside of family care in different countries and what kind of responses are happening there and whether you've seen or heard of any good practices. I thought we could begin in the UK, which is where you are. I've read some reports recently stating that the government has relaxed some key regulations that have been developed over the past few decades to protect the most vulnerable children. One, for example, is the requirement for a social worker to visit or phone a child in foster care every six weeks. Others are the requirements for placement plans for kinship care or for even having care standards in children's homes. These have been changed. If this is happening in the UK, what are we going to be seeing or what's likely to be happening in other countries where safeguards are already precarious or non-existent? It's been surprising. I think these measures in the UK might be part of a longer term agenda to really kind of undermine and fund the whole, the whole protection system. I think it, it could have devastating consequences and I think the so-called relaxing measures actually go deep to undermining the support systems that children in care have. So we are very concerned about these measures and I think the reaction should have been the opposite, looking at how social workers and other community and family support workers can continue to be in touch with families, can continue to support them, though, of course, respecting uh, the, the, the rules around social distancing, making sure that, you know, the, the kind of health risks are, are minimized. This is, we know that children suffer from anxiety. We know that mental health issues are increasing. We know that social isolation, especially on children who are already separated from their families and live in alternative care, is an issue that they deal with on daily basis. Adding the stress of, of an unknown virus and not having a trusting person to connect with, it's really a very bad idea. I do hope that efforts here in the UK will will stop this uh, relaxing rules and undermining uh, trajectory and will go back to really looking at, at how children can be supported and can be supported more. I am a trustee for an organization called Railway Children and we work in the UK with children who are living or street connected. And you can imagine they are extremely vulnerable. We work hand in hand with the train uh, services and with the police. And we saw an increase in the number of requests for support. 
So assuming that the, the work will decrease during this time is just the wrong assumption. Absolutely. Let's move across to uh, mainland Europe, to Belarus. This week, there's been reports that up to 23 people have been infected with COVID-19 at an orphanage. What do you think this means in terms of the ability to protect children that are living in such close quarters and require such intensive caregiving as at this particular orphanage? where children with developmental disabilities are living? Yes, I think there are a couple of also kind of um, issues that need to be brought in this conversation around the specific situation in Belarus. And I've been in touch over the years with a number of organizations. We worked in Belarus as well for a while, but not with children with severe special needs. And we know that the institutions for children with special needs have not been touched by any reform efforts, are really a a place that, to me, bring memories of of Romania. Back in the day when Romania was infamous about the child protection and care system. The other contextual factor that I think is important to recognise in this particular case is the fact that I believe that Belarus stood strong in recognising that COVID is not an issue that they are dealing with. And this again shows that the virus and the health issue can trickle in in the most vulnerable places. Here in the UK, in the care homes for elderly people, in Belarus, in in institutions for children with special needs. I think again, it shows how vulnerable this population is, especially when institutionalized. I think it shows that it's really, really hard to work with that environment to put in place measures that will minimize the risks. I mean, I I would say people would have to live on site. Uh, There should be testing available. The staff should be well uh, educated on how to interact and work with children. Communication and support for the kids to understand why people might be wearing a face mask or, you know, look different in their attire. Those kind of things, you know, need to be part of the process. And I think I have not heard yet of institutions for children with special needs where there are good examples of, of practice. I think it's, it's a disaster that we're waiting to happen. And unless the community is not providing the, the support and the attention for these groups of children, we are going to, to experience some, some serious hardship. Absolutely. It's a scary thought, isn't it? Yeah. So we'll head to the US now. And we're hearing that parent-child visitations for children in foster care have been indefinitely suspended. And according to federal law there, if a child's been in foster care for 15 of the most recent 22 months, then state courts must move to terminate parental rights. So without any changes to these laws, enormous amounts of children would be at risk of permanent separation just as a direct consequence of COVID-19. I know we're, we're seeing similar things in other countries, but I'm, I'm quite interested in you know, how governments can mandate these kind of uh, rules when there's very, very real and long-term effects on children? Well, again, I, I think it's, it's that lack of understanding the unintended consequences. Sometimes measures are being put in place with a view to be a short-term uh, stopgap to address the issue without really thinking through Uh, They are maybe designed by people who understand the policy, but not by the practitioners who are working with them. And most importantly, I think across the board, I would say that all these measures have had no useful, meaningful, real participation from a parent advocate or from a child who is actually the, the receiver, the recipient at the end of that policy. And I would only wish if governments and organizations broadly, rather than imagining scenarios and and coming up with ideas, would actually go straight to the communities and the people who are supposed to benefit or, or be affected by that policy and test the validity of their efforts. You know, this was a problem that we had in Romania back in late 90s, where 
if parents would not visit their children in institutions for a period, I, I can't remember precisely, but was something along three months, their parental rights could be removed and children could be then adopted or, or made available for international adoption. Of course, most of the parents had not even, they were not even aware that the rule existed. Second, they had no means to be able to visit their children. There was no kind of reminder available for them to come and see their kids. And therefore, it led to a lot of children being separated and, and you know, sent to, to other forms of care, including adoption. Uh, but in this case, again, what my conclusion on a positive side is, is why don't we look at planning these interventions in a way that we include the people who we want the interventions to benefit? Uh, genuinely, um, I think we'll be in a much better place. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to take us to India now. You know, India has millions and millions of children that are already living in poverty aside from this pandemic. We've got millions of homeless children on top of that. And during lockdown, there's nowhere for them to go when they're required to go home. Additionally, support services who would normally work with these children are not allowed to go out and support them during lockdown. So we're seeing huge numbers of children exposed to malnutrition, exposed to increased violence, engaging in petty crimes just to survive. Are we looking at a potential increase in the number of children who will end up in institutional care in a place like India, given there's been, you know, some preliminary and strong efforts to deinstitutionalize or start that process. Is this going to set us back? I wish I had a, a magic, a magic ball to be able to really look into the future that much. But I do think that that is a real risk. I'm not sure if India is the, the country where that risk will materialize, because I do believe that despite the situation and, and the way the lockdown was implemented, I think the people I met across a significant number of states, the high court and the Supreme Court judges that I, I've engaged with, actually expressed a keen interest to support children in families, a complete shift. And if you think about where the children who need support, where the vast majority of the children who need support in India, my feeling is that they are at community level. They are the children who live and work on the streets. They are the children who are deeply affected by the lockdown because they are unable to feed themselves. They might be separated from their parents. They might be in the wrong state because they accompany their parents for work and, you know, that seasonal migration and they were unable to, to feed themselves whilst there. I think India just opened up the, some of the restrictions and people who were in the wrong state, in the state where they were working, are now able to, to return home. I think in India, again, there is an, a significant opportunity. Over the past, I would say, five, six years, they've started to put in place a functional child protection system that connects the informal village level child protection mechanisms with a, a sort of a state-driven approach, including funding that is now made available for kinship care, uh, for sponsorship, for the emerging foster care network. Of course, institutions remain quite well established. Nevertheless, I must say over the past uh, four years, there was huge recognition that what was happening in the Indian institutions was utterly wrong and it should be completely eliminated. So what we are going to see in India, will see an increasing need for support at community level will see levels of poverty that will put children at risk and will expose children to risk for exploitation, for trafficking, a lack of access to school and so on and so forth, which need to be addressed with those emerging child protection mechanisms and funding that way needs to grow significantly to be able to balance the bill. So off to Kenya now. And we're hearing talk of government directives for orphanages to send children home to their families where possible. And I think 
you know, upon hearing this, I guess some of the listeners to this podcast might think, well, this is a positive outcome, right? And particularly for those of us that have been campaigning to end institutional care. And I know I was talking with my colleagues the other day and someone said, who would have thought it would take a pandemic to get kids out of orphanages, you know, but actually sending them home like that is extremely risky. And, you know, there's a whole range of risks, which I know you'll talk about, but how do you think governments should be managing this? Oh, this is a really, really important, important question. And you know what? It's I love our travel. And I think both of us really, really miss miss traveling internationally. I, I love the way we went from the UK to Belarus to US, India. Now we are in Africa. I think it's really, really important to say that there is no such thing as rapid reintegration. There is only one thing that is called reintegration and one thing that is called successful reintegration. And that is based on the assumption that the children and the family are ready, willing, prepared and supported to reunite and then to integrate in a supportive community around them. Sending children home from from institutions is, I do believe, it's a really knee-jerk reaction that can actually harm more than benefit children. There could be exceptional situations when, for example, the institution is really small, well integrated in the community, all children have been in touch with families and they were there for education purposes, absolutely they could return home. Just sending children home because we don't have the funding, we don't want to take responsibility for them, we do not want to put in the effort to keep those children safe and sending them back into communities where children have not been for some time, uh, where maybe risks led to children moving away, without any kind of follow-up or support is actually putting children more at risk. One very interesting thing in you know, 40,000 children in Ukraine have been sent home from boarding schools for children with learning disabilities without the ministry who takes care of children uh, in, you know, kind of social care way, uh, without them being even aware that this rapid transition, children are not just, uh, you know, bits and pieces of paper to send them back home. Some of the children were sent home to families that were not their families because their families moved from that address. This is appalling practice and it should be uh, completely and utterly forbidden as a way to dealing with a, with a health pandemic. Absolutely. And I imagine on some level it's a breach of the rights of the child to do that. Absolutely, in every single way. I think in Kenya's instance, at least the, the government recognised that every single child returning to a certain county uh, was and should be under the monitoring of the child protection or welfare officer in that particular region and should be visited and followed up and so on and so forth. I mean, in, in the Ukraine case, it happened overnight without those who should have been informed in the you know Ministry of Resort, <laughs> and it just happened. It's appalling. It is appalling. I guess on the flip side of the fact that we now have, you know, potentially millions, hundreds of thousands of children home, how can we keep them there rather than reinstitutionalizing? It's a really, really important, important question. And I think what I want to say is that crisis really gives us an opportunity not to repeat the mistakes of the past. We always react with building institutions during a crisis and we pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, but we saved these kids, it was emergency, it, it was for a short period of time. 20 years down the line, we're still working to deinstitutionalize those children and the institutions uh, and the whole system. So I think number one, what we need is to really look straight to communities and to understand that we are not here to have all the answers. We are here to facilitate people, community leaders, carers, children, to finding what are the solutions that can be put in place 
so they can first and foremost deal with the emergency of the situation, but build a sort of a long-term community type effort that will enable most children who might be at risk of separation to continue to thrive with their families. And, and that involves collaboration. That involves looking at children, not as an object of an intervention, but the mandated actor into designing the type of support that they need. That involves us looking holistically. I know the word is demonetized, but really looking at how do we ensure that all the critical well-being domains are being assessed and solutions are being found in a sustainable way. So we move away from the situation where poverty is uh, an underlying factor that leads to to children being separated from from their families. So if we are able to bring together the right partners at the community level and also the formal kind of government structures in a response that looks at consolidating people's ability to live in safe homes, strengthen their family and social relationships, you know, helps them to access adequate, suitable education, health measures, helps them to deal with with the antisocial behaviors, helps them to manage violence in the community, helps them to deal with, with situations where they might be at risk. And last but not least, we ensure that there is economic support, either through a welfare system that, or social protection system to begin with, but we are looking to reconstruction. That's the pathway that we need to do. I also think we need to be looking more at kinship care. I think we could ask families, you know, there are certain families where we could expect that carers might be more at risk, right? We have a grandmother taking care of children. We have an HA positive auntie who takes care of her children and the children of her sister. We have people with, you know, maybe uh, uh, someone with, with TB under treatment that might be more vulnerable to the virus. So there are practices that have been used to addressing the HIV AIDS crisis in Africa. There are great examples in South Africa. There are great examples in Uganda where actually families planned the succession of the caring within their extended family. And the support went along those lines rather than us creating other families or institutions uh, to deal with children who will or might lose their parenting in the crisis. You know, from a technical perspective, I understand all of that and that that's what we need to happen. And we needed that to be happening prior to this pandemic. But if I can play devil's advocate for a moment and touch on something that you said before, which was, you know, in a crisis, we build institutions. You know, you look at Haiti, you know, post-earthquake Haiti, you look at post-conflict Cambodia, all of these places where there's been a crisis up pop orphanages and in comes tourism. And something that's concerning me greatly at the moment is that perhaps, you know, all of the work that we've done on raising awareness around orphanage tourism, around reducing, you know, the products available to engage in orphanage tourism might be set back because, you know, once lockdowns are over, once travel opens up again, you've got this perfect storm of a great many children that are going to be in need of support, a lot of vulnerable children, You'll have people that are itching to travel and are potentially trying to alleviate some of their guilt about being able to travel by wanting to volunteer and support vulnerable children. You know, we may see more orphanages popping up or volunteer programs run by new organizations and new tourism companies that didn't exist before the pandemic because the ones that uh, did exist may have folded, may have shut down. What do you think of of the the capacity of tourism to derail us from our goals? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, I do think there is a a significant risk. I agree with you. And I think we'll need to be very mindful. But also, I think what we need is to move from being reactive, though we are at the moment, to, to building that preparedness that is needed. So I think what we need to do is to continue to work with a big kind of tourism uh, standard, golden standard and agencies who can 
be our peers in this fight to stopping the history coming back to us and stopping bad practice leading to children being unnecessarily separated or supported in a way that is actually harming them more than doing good. Uh, so I think that's number one. Number two, I think maybe we should be looking at this window of opportunity that we have. Uh, you were telling me before our conversation that is unlikely you will be traveling internationally until first quarter of next year. So I think, you know, what we can do is to, to remember the threats, the risk that you highlighted, and use this period of time to really continue to build the links and the advocacy work with the tourism agencies, and also to offer them, okay, if you want to help with the reconstruction effort, this is what you can do. You know, it's about helping children to access education. It's about the, it's the package that we offer in lieu of them trying to find the best, the best solution. I, I always believe that if we treat people as equal parts of the solution, it's probably easier to bring them on board. Absolutely. That's always been my approach too. Yeah. And I think on the other hand, on the big picture of us not repeating the mistakes of the past, it's, it's interesting, but there are so many good examples of hundreds of thousands of children who were separated uh, or often during conflict. For example, uh, Rwanda is, is an example where 250,000 people were without their parents, either through being orphaned or, or because they were separated during those days of the genocide. Most of those children, 90% of them, were actually reintegrated with their families and communities, extended families. So we have plenty of examples of how this can be done in situations where the, the floodgates are, are open and significant numbers of children. The other very good example I, I remember John Williamson shared with me his experience years and years ago in Uganda. Uganda was the first country in East Africa or that was deeply affected by HIV and AIDS. And Uganda was one of the countries who decided that they are not going to be using any residential care to address the HIV and AIDS orphanhood. And basically they, they mobilized their communities to absorb those children. We have plenty examples of community-based mechanisms keeping children safe the problem is that rather than supporting those efforts through our professional services and the formal systems, we are building parallel systems that look very shiny and then they absorb children in. So a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you said before that out of crisis comes opportunity and I think that's particularly the case with tourism at a, you know, taking a wider lens than just orphanage tourism, but, you know, other forms of exploitative tourism, volunteerism. And I think there's a, a silver lining here or an opportunity for us to engage with the tourism sector on redesigning what community engagement looks like in the context of tourism and, and, you know, shifting that narrative from this idea of helping and saviorism to, you know, walking beside or walking alongside and, and learning and supporting in that way. Absolutely. I can't agree more. And I, I have a lot of trust because you and other people have done such an amazing work bringing the tourism energy broader group into actually supporting our efforts. So you've done, I think, the, the hardest part of the work, bringing them on board as partners, I guess, you know, would be a manifesto, help us with the COVID-19 recovery. Yeah, absolutely. You know, from my preliminary conversations with clients in the tourism sector, you know, there's certainly from some of them a will and an understanding that they have a role to play and they particularly hold a responsibility in places where communities have become completely reliant on tourism and now that doesn't exist and they're in crisis. So I think there's an acknowledgement of the responsibility and the opportunity, but my my understanding now is they're very much in crisis mode mm -hmm. and wondering how first to survive it because if they don't yes. exist they can't help 
Correct. So I think we're still in that phase and there's thinking around what's next and how to redesign, but we're not there yet. It is an existential threat uh, to to travel, and obviously, I think by maybe engaging engaging the the key leaders, you've already formed such a, a fantastic collaborative and supportive relationship into a recovery plan, both for them. And I do remember uh, you uh, once showed me a, a sort of a a good practice type guide of how to do things, you know, just helping their recovery efforts to connect with what we want to see on the child protection and care and doing good without doing harm, without unintended consequences and showcasing those efforts when when tourism will, will peak up again. I think that that would be a fantastic. And you, you know, you, you just need one partner to start this conversation. So let's resume our world trip and have our last stop in Morocco. Uh, a slightly different approach is being taken there. The government has actually launched an action plan to protect children in vulnerable situations and particularly children who live in institutional care. Some of this involves providing remote psychological support to children, increasing and adapting reporting mechanisms and ensuring children can access education and learning through the development of communication systems. Would you see this as an example of what governments should be looking to do instead of some of those examples of what we're hearing in other countries? It sounds like it, for sure. I, you, I, I wasn't aware of the example in Morocco. I will definitely go to, to learning more. There is a huge demand from across the world, uh, from governments and, and NGOs, to learning what works and how best they can, they can support this, these efforts, especially for children in institutions. So I'm hearing everything, everything right. Yes, extra support, psychological support, adaptation of the programs, ensuring learning continues, and, and so on and so forth. All these should be in place and and should be delivered. I know there are other countries that they're doing similar, trying to apply these similar issues. I guess those countries where the scale of institutional care is much greater and also where you have private institutions, government-run institutions, registered, unregistered, it's really very hard to apply a standardized approach. It relies entirely on those people who are in charge. Yeah. But would you say that a better approach would be to not wind back existing safeguards rather than, you know, winding them back? We'd want to be adapting them and ensuring that they're offering the same or a better level of protection in recognition of the increased risk to children. Absolutely. You should never, especially in this situation, wind back any safeguards. What you need to do is how you can deliver those safeguards in the context of not being able to be physically there, but, you know, everybody's connected with a phone, tablet, etc., and finding new ways to be able to stay in touch. I mean, just having the, the awareness that, for example, girls and women are more likely to be vulnerable to violence, uh, being able and aware that when you're calling a carer, the child's voice is what will tell you how and what is going on in, in the family. You're not relying on just one source of information. So it becomes more. It becomes more often, more calls, more contacts, more uh, awareness in a slightly different way because you don't, you might not have the visual or, or the personal contact with those, with those children you are, you're following up with which leads to extra work. Uh, that means you're actually going to spend more hours making sure that things are, are actually on the right path. A friend of mine, uh, she works in, in Peru. She was telling me that over the two weeks, the first two weeks of the lockdown in one particular community where they're supporting vulnerable families, children and vulnerable families or families at risk, they received 50 reports of rape in two weeks time now 
this type of awareness tells us, and this is the evidence that tells us, that we need to be even more alert, that we need to find alternative ways to be able to continue to provide that basic, fundamental safeguarding support. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're seeing that around the world. We're seeing increased numbers of calls coming into family violence support services. We're seeing in India, I think there was a 50% increase over seven days in the number of children calling a child helpline for support. 91,000 children. Yeah, it's quite confronting. And and we know that when children are being kept at home and are not able to attend places like school where people can have eyes on them when those traditional monitoring mechanisms are not available, you know, it it makes me wonder what are we going to see down the track? What are the long-term implications of this? I think what we need to do also is to recognize that the additional stressors that everybody feels can be supported and compensated. Also, what we need to recognize is that these kind of very severe lockdowns are not going to be forever. Uh, They can't be really implemented without major, major consequences for longer periods of time. So rather than us being reactive and saying, oh, we're going to rescue and, you know, take all these kids out of of these terrible families and and care for them in, in another family or in an institution where they are safe, what we need to do is to support children and families as, as a whole, to help communities to deal with the pressure of COVID, with loss of income, with, with the mental health issues, with the other support. And what is shocking, and is that I don't know how many governments, but not that many, recognize social workers, family workers, community volunteers as essential workers in this crisis. And that tells us how low on the priority list of people who are working to supporting children and families. And I think this is a a moment of advocacy for us. We should, we should highlight. Absolutely. I want to get your thoughts on what the long-term implications of the economic side of this crisis might be and how that might affect funding for institutions moving forward. I can only imagine that there are kind of three layers of economic consequences. Governments in developed countries who are usual donors to supporting developing countries are potentially less able, less willing to provide the same amount of support because their economies are going down or are almost brought to a halt. And they will be more concerned about serving their own economies rather than continuing. So that is, to my mind, a key area, a priority area for for advocacy going forward. It will be very short-sighted to just be uh, looking internally rather than looking at the global economy. Second, I think the private sectors, people who are keen to continue to support international development might not have the same means. You know, uh, as you said, the travel industry, the other companies who have been severely affected by, by lack of business and future kind of business picking up slowly, those kind of supports might be less. Therefore, our capacity as NGOs to contribute significantly to the development efforts might be limited in the total net. And then, of course, you have the countries in which we do our work where children and families will experience more risks, will be living below the poverty line in greater numbers. And I think that that would be a significant, a significant issue because that will imply an increasing number of people who need support. Now, this entire economic situation tells us one thing very clearly. Institutional care cannot address those situations because it is in any case expensive and it's not sustainable uh, apart from the obvious fact that it harms children. But that's where I see the opportunity. I see the opportunity in us giving more support to families and communities, which is always much more sustainable, cost-effective and sustainable in long term. So I think it will make us look at what are the most cost 
effective interventions, which are the most impactful ways for us to assist children, families, and communities in this particular order with services that are sustainable, with services that are there to last and have a longer horizon for the increasing level of standards and the increasing well-being of, of communities in a particular financial situation. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, it's going to be quite challenging, but I think, again, if we are, if we are not looking at the right things, we, we might be missing the whole opportunity for us to, to strengthen families going forward. Definitely. And I think something we've seen here in Australia and, and certainly in other countries is um, orphanages or orphanage founders coming out in the media and, you know, coming on national television and begging for funding and, and saying, you know, if we don't get funding, we won't survive these poor children you know, and, and some of them openly stating that the loss of their tourist visitors and volunteers means that the orphanage can't survive. I mean, you know, on one hand, there's, you know, they're admitting that they're entirely reliant on tourism for their survival, yet they don't seem to be willing to adapt to perhaps reducing costs by looking at reintegration. It is very interesting. And I think all these situations, we need to, to really learn from them. And what, what we can take forward in our advocacy with governments and with, with other bodies, like you've done in Australia, would be to, to ensure that the funding mechanisms available for you know, providing an essential, let's call institutions an essential service for this purpose only, a service to children, doesn't rely on a funding mechanism that is, is, is wrong. It uses the children as a way to entice people to come volunteer, feel good about themselves, and then keep, keep the model going. You know, again, the exposure of those situations, actually, I think we need to use it in our ability to re-engage with those people and help them to, to really close that chapter if at all possible, and provide children with an alternative. Yes, that would be the ideal outcome. So, Delia, I want to come back a bit to you uh, and kind of, you know, round out our conversation by asking you who is or has been your greatest influence in doing good and why? Well, uh, there are a couple of people or individuals that have really influenced my life. One is my grandfather. Um, he was a brilliant medical doctor and, and he, he would not spare a second thinking about, uh, oh, do I want to jump in and help this person with whatever issue. I do remember taking walks with him as a child and I was so frustrated because a normal walk of 20 minutes would take us an hour and a half because he would be stopped by people saying, hello, thank you, how are you, so good to see you. Yes, so he was, he was my inspiration. My, my parents, of course, they, they brought me up. They gave me a, a fantastic upbringing and, and the philosophy of life that put others before, before me. But one little boy in Romania, in one of my first jobs working with the Romanian government in a, in a small group home, it was the first kind of service alternative to an institution that was ever developed in Romania at that time. And I, I was the, the director of that particular service. This little guy who started speaking when he was six, uh, a kid who was labeled as deaf and dumb and, and written off and people around him stopped talking to him because he was deaf. Though everything started as a legend, no one actually had any evidence that he was profoundly deaf or unable to, to learn uh, to, to how to speak. And this little, this little kid spoke his first words when he was six. And there were no mom or dad, but they were buona diminata, good morning. And we, we, we cried and laughed and, and he basically spent his entire day going up in his bedroom and coming downstairs to seeing us to say Buna Liminata. He really taught me the, the, um, the most fundamental kind of lesson 
he inspired me in, in, in continuing to do this work. There is a way back. No one should be left behind, no matter how hard and how, you know, lacking of love, stimulation and, and care was anyone's upbringing. No child should be left behind and no child should not be given the opportunity to find a way into living a fulfilling life in a loving setting and a, a loving family, preferably. I get my energy from the people that I work with and I'm inspired. And I see so many leaders of small and medium-sized organizations who are relentless. You know, they have very little funding, but they have passion. They have desire to do good. They're doing fantastic work. These are the people that inspire me every day. Wonderful, wonderful. The next question is a bit of a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest challenge of our time is? And when I say that, I mean something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. We do need to redefine what makes us happy as human beings. And I think this particular situation where something that is so defining of humans, the socializing part of our lives is made relatively, it's, it's hard to implement though, you know, Zoom works, but it's not the same. I think what, what this uh, situation is, is putting us in a place where it gave us an opportunity to to look at us, at what we want, at how we define our happiness and worth, our values. And I hope that we will find that sweet spot whereby we can live in a way that we respect the planet and the means that the planet gives us. And at the same time, we do not abandon the realization of human rights. Um, so finding that kind of uh, sweet element of us being happy and finding a purpose i think that's the biggest challenge that we have at the moment yeah definitely definitely so if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it what would it be children need to grow up in loving and safe families to be able to develop to their full potential and this is what we need to facilitate, to support. That would be my message. <laughs> Perfect. I wholeheartedly agree with that one. Tell me about a person who you think is doing a lot of good in the world, someone you're admiring right now. I don't think you have time for me to be able to list the people that I think do a lot of you're doing a fantastic job and by oh, doing this podcast you. i want to put you on the spot lee <laughs> i think you're doing a fantastic job and you're doing a lot of good there are so many people and i feel like finally i don't know we are we are kind of coming together as a field we yeah. have never been a field i felt but I do believe we are closer to being a field and to, being, to be speaking in one voice. Yes. Um, and that is so exciting because we can really do so much more by working together. Absolutely. And, you know, I've always, always thought that and always wanted that. So it's really nice to hear that we're, we're coming much closer to that. So my final two questions for you are, where is your favorite place on earth? Well, the best place in the universe. You know, Lee, I've traveled so much. The, the, I do have about 10 places. The best <laughs> place in the universe at the moment, and I'm sure in the future as well, is my home. Yeah, that's a very good answer. And I think, you know, a lot of people are appreciating their homes a lot more right now. And, you know, being appreciative of the fact that we've got them as well. So what book are you reading at the moment? Well, very good question. Uh, I've been reading and I'm still reading Donut Economy. The Donut Economy, very interesting. I think that's why I was so uh, mentioning the, the element of respecting the, the, the world capacity, us, 
it's fascinating, it's interesting. And I always look at a crisis as an opportunity and I do hope in our economic uh, recovery, we're going to be a bit more mindful. Let's not forget that the beginning, the last year and the beginning of this year and last year mostly was, was really punctured by a number of very important climate change events and and a, a growing movement and i don't i think that's something that is so important for us to to be mindful of yeah and do you listen to podcasts i do i will be listening to your podcast from now on <laughs> thank you oh <laughs> uh, you're welcome um i am listening to the guardian podcasts every day because okay. i love their style and there is another outlet it's kind of slow journalism it's called Turtoys, and it's a brilliant piece of, of journalism. Uh, it has articles, but also uh, podcasts available and thinking pieces. And that's for kind of more than just the news. Perfect. Well, Delia, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I always love talking to you and I always learn so much when I talk to you and I could do so for hours. Thank you for your time. I know it's a really busy time for you. And yeah, as always, just a wonderful speaker and you are so engaged and you know knowledgeable about your work. So thank you. Thank you, Lee. It's been my pleasure. And I know I've known of your podcast and I really admired your the development of it and I saw the people you invited on um, I'm really privileged and uh, thank you so much for for thinking thinking of, of me for for this podcast thanks for listening to the good problem podcast if you like what you hear don't forget to subscribe and share head to www.leematthews.com to find out more